Welcome to the Drunk Guys Book Club, where books aren't just for school, where book clubs aren't just for women, and we were the drunk guys. We still are the drunk guys, but we were the drunk guys. <laughs> I'm Mike. I'm Nate. I'm Jimmy. And, uh, and we're still the drunk guys. And this week we are reading uh, We Were the Mulvaney's by Joyce Carol Oates. And I'll start with a beer. So... This book takes place in St. Well, at least the beginning part mostly takes place in St. Ephraim, New York, which I don't even bother to look if that's a real place, but it could be. You know, one of those random upstate places that you don't really think about often. Never. So this beer is called the Great Northern because uh, we live in New York City and that's north of us. And this is an imperial stout made by Evil Twin Brewing. It is part of their series that is kind of like still coming out at the time this recording comes out. So you could, you could snag one if you want of their first run of barrel aged beers. This is number three in the series. It is an imperial stout that was aged in a combination of bourbon maple syrup barrels and red wine barrels. It's 14% alcohol. After 23 months of aging, they added toasted coconut, coconut, cacao nibs, and cinnamon. So after 23 months? 23 months in barrels, according to the, the, the lore on this can. Goddamn, is that good? That is so much better than much of what happens in this book. <laughs> but yeah, this beer is fantastic. Are these the tiny cans? It's a, oh, it's a baby little can, yeah. I did not develop some sort of pituitary gland issue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like Andre the Giant. <laughs> I talk like this now because my throat's big. <laughs> yeah, it's sold in eight ounce cans, but it's like $34 for a four pack of these little baby cans. So it's a little on the pricey side. We have a Patreon, you know. Okay, so... Uh, we Were the Mulvaney's is a novel by Joyce Carol Oates, who I had heard that name forever, uh, and I think I read a short story or two of hers in like college and, you know, like a English 101 type setting, but I didn't know anything about her. She's a book person's author. Oh, yeah, and she's written like 4,000 books. She has put something out either every year or every two years This forever. is. I think I read this was her 25th novel. Yeah, something like that. But she, but unlike you know other people who put and this out, was twenty five years ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and she's still alive, still doing stuff. Unlike other people who have put out fifty books, like Stephen King or Dean Koontz or shit, hers are widely considered really good, <laughs> like well written. Like she's actually a really yeah. high quality author. Uh, and it came out in ninety six, and it was like you know just like her previous twenty four books or twenty five books, whatever it was, sold to book nerds. But then in two thousand and one. It was like the first Oprah's book club book. It was a Oprah's. book club I don't know if it was. I think it was. No uh, idea if it was the first. But like it, inst- like whatever was left of that initial print one was like sold out. Had to be reprinted because then you know suddenly regular people knew that she was a person. Exactly, and it, and it sold a bajillion copies again after that. I guess we've actually done a couple. Of, the Road was an Oprah's book club. Man, that's a dark. <laughs> one. That's a dark one for the Oprah. For the Oprah, one of the earlier ones, because they did about seventy books or so overall. Most of these books I've never actually heard of. And she had a very weird interview on Oprah that I tried to find, but I couldn't find any video of. Oh, here you go. This is from the Guardian. Oates took to Oprah's book club, and in a way, some of her younger, more modern literary peers did not. In Oprah's world, readers don't read; they stay up all night sobbing their way through a book and then write to its author in the morning. I found that very wonderful and very surprising, said Oates, blinking her great marble eyes. Since I'm a literary person, I look upon books as texts that have been imagined and written, but the general reading public looks upon books as documents of reality. Or so the people on Oprah would say, for instance, I have a mother just like that, or my father was just like that, or this happened to me. 
They don't seem to perceive, nor do they wish to perceive, that this is a novel. I think if they had, for instance, a class on Shakespeare's Hamlet, they would say, Gertrude is just like my mother. Hamlet's like my brother. Ophelia, that's my story. And they would get a lot of emotion out of that. Readers gobble up their books as an excuse to basically talk about themselves. Of course, one doesn't want to dampen their enthusiasm. And that is some hmm. pretentious shit. She is and probably an enormously pretentious woman. I did watch one interview with Charlie Rose, which we'll talk about at the end because it was pretty funny. But she's, she's like a super highbrow literature like professor at Princeton. Like just besides being on Oprah's thing, she was like a, just a, she was like the deep cuts of uh, like, you know, like people who are into music was like, oh yeah, you like Pink Floyd, but well, you never heard of Dapper Dan's Penguin Band, you know? It's like the real people who did this, you know, some dumb shit like that. Is that a, is that a real thing? I don't know. Probably not, but it could be. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, the same like, like not sure. <laughs> There's a non-zero chance. You might be missing out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going to make that band now. But like You, you, uh, you said me. that name too quickly for that to be. Like, aren't the Dapper Dan's <laughs> the Barbershop Quartet and Disney World? Isn't that what they're called? I have maybe I don't know it just it, it flowed well and then penguin band just kind of rhymed enough so that's definitely <laughs> uh, either like a a swing revival band like the Doc, Doc Brian Setzer Orchestra or they're a fourth wave ska band where they surpassed humanity or just now bands with animals but anyway <laughs> futurist ska <laughs> whether the singularity has been achieved okay did you guys know that the I, I saw this earlier today. I don't know if it's true because it's on the internet, but the Mandarin word for penguin <laughs> translates to business goose. <laughs> I've heard that. Damn, I've heard I that. That's true. <laughs> oh, uh, that's beautiful. Anyway, Joyce Carol Oates is an enormously, every review of her starts off with how many books she's written because she's primarily known for like, she writes a lot of books and they are generally quite well received, but she is definitely not an everyday person, everyday reader's book kind of thing, at least until like recently after Oprah probably, but still even then. Well, she's not the only one they bristled at being in Oprah's book club. I know Jonathan Franzen, who is a pretentious douche, he didn't like when the corrections, which I've never read, but I've, I own a copy and it's like a 700 page pretentious book about mm. douchery. And <laughs> I it's like, I bought it. It was a, get a book sale, like a dollar. I can't say no for a buck. I should have said no. And he was like, oh, she write, you know, most of the Oprah's book club books are like schmaltzy, one-dimensional. Tattooist of Auschwitz shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, what are the other, I mean. Maybe you, not you, that bad. You look at the list, it's like a lot of like Toni Morrison. Like, I don't think Toni Morrison is considered schmaltzy, no, douchey. Right? But I don't know all the other books, so maybe. But let's get, let's get back to the, the end of the book after we talk about what actually happens. So it takes place in upstate New York, which, according to my wife, who is a big Joyce Carol Oates fan, uh, Nearly all of her books take place in upstate New York in the 50s, 60s, 70s, because that's what she grew up with, and that's what she knows, and that's what she can write. So that seems to be her thing, which is weirdly narrow, but I guess it works for her. Well, she's a, yeah, she's from, like, Niagara County, New York, Joyce Carol Oates. She is, oh my God, she is old. She's 82. She yeah, she's old. Like she's made of She's still writing. Paper. She's got a book coming out in, or has come out in last year, I think. Still going. She writes all of her books longhand. That sounds. That sounds like what probably because she, she's never fucking used a computer. But I don't know. She's so, so <laughs> fucking old. She was like, I don't trust that movable type. 
Gutenberg. Uh, so, okay, the book <laughs> takes place. <laughs> the book takes place in upstate New York and is very much about small town life in what I'm sure is entirely accurate accurate for that area, especially in the 50s, 60s, 70s. A big part of the book is about just sort of the family and the life at High Point Farm, which everyone loves. Um, it's not, I mean, it's, it is sort of a working farm, but it also sort of isn't. They just sort of like own a farm because it sounds nice, even though they really can't quite afford it. And the the, the family, they're like leasing out as much of the land as possible, but they do keep horses. They got a bunch of dogs. They have a bunch of cats, you know, other farm animals. The family's main income is the father's roofing business. Anyway, but this home called High Point Farm is so important. So I have a beer for this. This is called Feels Like Home. <laughs> Actually, this is a Feels Like Home Craft Cider. Mm. And the outside of the can is flannel. I mean, it's for, not actually flannel. For a it second, looks I like really flannel. thought that it was like, wow, that must be expensive to make. That's dedication. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it has a sleeve. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's cider, 5.4% alcohol. It's very nice. I think it's a little bit less dry than the other artifact cider I had recently for that other episode. Those things, like, I feel like you need to have them all at the same time to be able to tell a difference. But it's cider, so it's delicious. So, you know, it's great. So the main character, sort of, okay, there are a bunch of main characters. In the beginning, it sounds like the youngest child is going to, it's going to be told from the perspective of the youngest child, but then it, he's only actually in it kind of the least or kind of the second least. Each family member mostly gets their own, gets their own parts. Not all of them. It's really the youngest child, whose name is Judd, gets a bit... But then there's, it's mostly about the mom named Corinne, and then, or is that how you pronounce it? I was pronouncing Corinne in my head, but. Yeah. And then the daughter, Mary Ann, and then the second son, Patrick. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Whole book is a three-hour tour. Um, (laughs) It's like a fucking 12-hour tour, this book. It is monstrous. Really, uh, a little bit about the father. I mean, yes, definitely. The father's a very important character. I'm just saying he doesn't get a lot of point of view characters. He's Mike Sr. No relation. And then the the oldest son. Yeah, no relation to Mike. uh, But relation to the other Mike. Relation to Mike Jr. Just not not this Mike. Mike Jr. or (laughs) Mule Mulvaney. The oldest son, he's actually in it the least. Yeah. So you get a lot about each person and their personalities, and you they talk a lot about the what it's kind of like on the farm and how much everybody likes the animals. Before we move on, would you say that growing up in the fifties and sixties and having that many kids, you think they went through a lot of peanut butter and milk? <laughs> this is maybe. The, I'd say there's a chance. This is from Left Hand Brewing. It's a peanut butter milk stout. Six point two percent. Sometimes it's hard to keeping the faith. I always think of that every time. <laughs> Jesus Christ! This smells like a jar of peanut butter. So it's two hundred calories a sip. Yeah, it's like I can feel my arteries screaming. <laughs> but it's got the pictures of the Reese's peanut butter cups on it. It has a slightly bitter flavor, but besides that, it tastes a lot like a Reese's peanut butter cup. It's not as sweet, though, but it's pretty good. It tastes a little bit bitter afterwards, but after the bitterness passes, my mouth tastes like I ate a Reese's, which 
You know, it's like those little throat sprays, but way better. <laughs> Imagine they made throat sprays, but it was just chocolate instead of like mint. So you just smell like a fat kid. <laughs> or smell like a fat kid's mouth, which is really <laughs> ideal, really. <laughs> Isn't that what you want? You know, just, everyone wants to smell like a fat kid's mouth. They have it's all the fun. Hot chocolate air. It was like nachos. <sighs> <and> moist <laughs> chocolate air. <laughs> moist chocolate air is a fart, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, like the first this book, the beginning of the book, I had like what I had I had read nothing about this book going into it. I was like, what is happening? This it's just like weird reminiscences, and it's just sort of it's very dreamy in the beginning, especially because it's sort of just shifting between sort of the current event of the plot and then flashbacks, descriptions that are kind of out of time of characters. And, and just kind of going back and forth within a chapter and often changing from perspective of characters to the other. So it's a little hard to follow. It's kind of like, well, you know that the character, the main, the narrator, the baby one, Judd, is recounting this as an adult. So there's like a uh, reminiscence element of the thing. And, it, and it, that's what I thought was happening. Like He also says that he's making a lot of making a lot of it up to the best of his ability from based on what he kind of knew because he wasn't there for a lot of it. And he was purposely left in the dark on a lot of it, too. Yeah, because he was a kid for when all the bad things happen. The way the story is told is actually quite similar to Middlesex. I thought of that. The way the author is just sort of telling these stories of, like, his grandparents way before he was born in things that, you know, another person would... It's from their perspective, but he's describing what happens to them. I thought even in addition to that with Middlesex is... The long descriptions of just like physical things in an area, you know, like there'll be a whole paragraph where it's basically just a list of the objects in a barn or something, you know, and it was very, very detailed. I sometimes I, I don't I, I cannot tell you why, but sometimes when a writer does that, I'm like, this is stupid and you should cut it. And other times I'm like, I really like reading it. I guess it's just the way it's written and presented. Yeah, definitely. Uh, like Middlesex, like. The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay are two books I could think of right away that did that thing a lot that I loved. And this book did it too. And I thought I really liked it in this book too. I didn't find it chorish like you do sometimes. But it takes a while. And then it starts to allude to stuff that happened a night with the daughter Marianne. And, you know, you figure out, you you have a a working theory pretty quickly what happened. But you don't actually find out until like literally a quarter through the book. You find out what happened there. Should we just jump right to that? So Marianne, all nicknamed Button, you know, was sort of just kind of like the nicest person and biggest Jesus freak. Yeah, also very religious like her mom. She goes to the Valentine's Day dance with this guy. She goes with Austin Austin Weedman, and then he's a big nerd. So then Zachary the Lunt uh, swoops in and, you know, does bad things. As uh, the Jersey Shore cast would say, he pulls a robbery and he steals the girl from uh, the, the weed. I ha. will right. take your word for it. You I didn't watch Jersey Shore? Yes, you did. That's like no, 10 years ago. I never did. I, n- I never had any desire to watch that. Oh, I've had many desires to have not watched it and to not watch <laughs> it, but my wife watched it, so I had to watch it. And it's on Hulu, so. Now you have to watch it again? I've watched it. I watched it again. Uh. <laughs> And and it's embarrassing that I'll, it'll be on, and I'm like, these people make me sick of. Like, I, <laughs> I, I I see why other countries look at America and they're like, look at the decadence of the West, and they. Look. <laughs> but then, 
<laughs> Such decadence. <laughs> like, look at this scum. But then, I'll, I like we're sitting there because it's like when well, we were eating dinner or something, or like when well, my kid's taking a nap, and like then. Uh, but I get why. And I'm like, wait a second, why is he doing that? And my wife's like, she's, you said you didn't care. Shut the fuck up. I'm like, but but why are they doing these things? It doesn't make any sense. And she, that's the point. It's a statement on modern nihilism. Oh, it is. Uh, but back to the book for a second. When was that prom again? It was Valentine's Day. I think I have a beer for that. This is from a collaboration from Evil Twin Brewing New York City and Two Tides Brewing Company, and it's called How Much Cheese... This is a riddle. (laughs) How much cheese is even more cheese? Chocolate-covered strawberry Valentine's Day edition. It's like a joke a three-year-old makes up, and you're like, that doesn't make any sense, kid. Yeah, I don't think they... (laughs) Uh, Potato. So, um... This is a 6% alcohol sour ale with strawberry, chocolate, vanilla, graham cracker, cream cheese, and milk sugar. I don't really get all that stuff. I certainly don't get the chocolate. Uh, I don't get... I get strawberry. I get sour. I don't think it's I don't think it's as good. There was the how much cheese is more cheese or something like that. I think I had it on... Fuck. Uh, what was that stupid spy? A Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Did that even come out yet? When did that, whenever that yeah, came out. Yeah, we put out, that out right away. Oh, yeah, because that guy died, right? <laughs> Uh, I had that and I was like, this sounds gross, but I have to buy it. And I ended up really liking it. So when this was announced, oh, it's the same beer, but with chocolate, how could it go wrong? I think it, I think it did. It's just, it flew too close to the sun here and it's just not that good. But we should say that these beers, good or not, are brought to us by our pals over at Patreon. And uh, if you're so interested in becoming one, you can head over to patreon.com slash drunk guys book club. For $1 a month, you can vote in our monthly book poll where we, where you pick a book for us. Don't think if those commercials are like for a dollar a month, you could save these animals. No, no, no. For a dollar a month, you could vote in our book poll. Those animals have short lifespans. There are the ones in the commercial are and already dead. shortening our <laughs> lifespans. Yeah, we need that money. So also you can get stuff like we will yell your name out. On the internet, in the middle radio. of coitus, <laughs> <laughs> and they'll be like, "Who is that?" I'll be like, "Don't ask." My wife also, keeps asking me about emotional support burrito. I mutter it in my sleep. <laughs> I often think of emotional support burritos. We all need one this year. <laughs> and you can also get cool stuff like uh, we're going to send you a book, maybe, or mm, like anymore. a cup with our. St- name on it all and sorts of cool testing barware. out some other interesting things that have our name on it so you can proudly show your friends that you gave money to us and not npr they don't need it anymore they're fine also early access did we say early access to our episodes that too so you yeah that too and and you could you know and if you suggest a book there we'll read it faster than the people who don't pay when they suggest books yes and you're on the fast track to drunk guys uh you're on the hov the lane but don't drink and drive. Anyway, back to this book. So they're at the dance, and it, it never it's never really explicitly said. I would say that the chapter, because each chapter kind of focuses from the perspective of one person, and it bounces around. But I would say that the, the chapter, Strawberries and Cream, which recounts Marianne's day afterwards, where she's, you know, like, it's like trying to hide her dress, and, you know, she's basically just, yeah, she's just fucked up. That was probably one of the best chapters of anything I've ever read. I mean, they they, they do do uh, oats. I mean, they specifically say says it. what happens, yeah. but for, they don't for that chapter at least a bunch more until afterwards when it's just like the family talking about themselves. But that whole time, it's never really said. It's just very heavily alluded to, and it's 
depressing. Have we said what it is yet? She's raped in the back of a car by the guy. Who, which was confusing in the book because you, the whole, you, you figure it out as you're reading it and you know she went to the date on the date with this other character who's never ever in any other scenes. But then you find that it's not that guy and that was a little confusing. But then it only kind of gets filled in later that over the course of the evening, they, you know, she's a junior. She's like the youngest court member of the prom because they do a very old school king and queen and like viscount and grand earl <laughs> prom or whatever they do. But she went to the party after that. She's, you know, she's a junior. She goes to the party. She's there with like the dweeby senior guy. He sucks. But she's gorgeous and popular and so just perfect. And, and the nicest girl in town. Yeah. And then this other douchebag guy who's like a freshman in college, I guess, because he's like two years older than her. He's a senior. Is he a he's, senior? In, uh, he's in Patrick's ear. And his name is Zachary Lunt. And he dances with her and like steals her away from the loser guy. And then kind of not forces. I mean, he heavily he gets her drunk. He gets her shit faced on screwdrivers. But then, you know, it's like, oh, I'll take her home. And then. We kind of, we skipped over the part earlier in the book. There's a story about how a whole bunch of dudes gang raped a she like special needs girl. Like, well, there's a, a girl a girl with a learning disability or sort of developmental disability or something like that who was from the poor part of town and who was like lived in from, a trailer from the, the shanty town where everybody just kind of ju- like they were all sl- scum as far as the rest of the town people are concerned. And uh, they took uh, you know she's like 15 and all these senior guys take her in their van and they just all banged her one day and everyone was just talking about it and then nobody did anything about it they were just like wow that's a crazy thing that happened she was asking for it she's a dirty girl later on you find out that this dude who's taken marianne he was one of that crew and when they're leaving the party the other guys are like hey man don't forget about your buddies and and she's like why are they grabbing at my hair while we're leaving here why are they grabbing at me I'm leaving here with Zachary for a ride home. What could go wrong? Because she's so innocent and unaware of what's about to happen. But she hides it from her, doesn't tell anybody, hides it from her family and is going through this very much emotional crisis. The family doesn't even figure it out. Nobody finds out until like three days later, the mom is in a store and a lady comes up to her and, and says like, your daughter hasn't been in school for the last couple of days. I know because I've seen her over in this church praying every day. In the Catholic church. I think she's there right now. So the mom goes over there and walks right up to her daughter and is like, honey, what's wrong? Why are you here instead of in school? And then she kind of tells, they bring her to the doctor, the doctor examines her. And even though it's like three days later, she's like, you know, has a lot of bruises. Uh, but Marianne doesn't want to press charges. She thinks it's sort of at least partially her fault, or she says, because she was drunk, They, uh, she says she doesn't quite remember. She doesn't want to falsely accuse anybody. And it brings it into, like, religion. Can't bear, bear false witness. She can't bear false witness. And nobody tells her no, which tells her that she's wrong about that in the whole book, which I'm sure was much more common in the 70s well they do the father's like who is it tell me who he is like we we're gonna yeah. file a complaint like they do tell her like they don't necessarily tell her it's not your fault but they're like it's that guy needs to be taken to justice as soon as the father finds out he 
immediately goes to he goes over to that family's that kid's house and is threatening to beat him up but the police are already there and he does like attack the father because the wife tipped him off and so the wife you know called the his wife called the police first said dude you, you gotta you gotta do something about this so he doesn't really get in trouble for it but he does kind of beat up the father but the problem is then there's like it's a small town and there are sort of like some richer more important people that Mike Sr. has always been trying to, you know, be part of that crowd, even though he's really just a roofer. And it, this opens up a lot of conflict w- w- between him and the rest of these sort of like, you know, you could call them the rich, important guys in the town. And so they like shun him. From this part of the story onward is really about, you know, it really just destroys the entire family. Yeah, they try in to pretend each, everything's in normal. Different it ways. does not work. <laughs> no, definitely not. In in many different ways. First of all, like the father is, you know, so distraught over this that eventually he decides that he he can't be around Marianne. He can't look at her because he's so ashamed, not of her exactly, but just ashamed of what happened part ashamed of himself and so angry at the rest of the way the way everyone else is treating him um the mother has marianne sent away to live with an aunt in a you know town an hour or two's drive away from where they live and marianne literally doesn't see her father again except one one time the older brother also moved out before this yes because the the older the, the older brother who you see the least you know he didn't exactly get along with the father perfectly before. Maybe he was okay, but you know, when when the father is very much has his own trauma because of this, he's just fighting with everybody. And the son, after weeks, mere mere weeks, is like, "Fuck this! I'm out of here." I was living in town, and then he got into this thing, and then he went and joined the Marines, and then he's basically not in the book for the rest of the time. Well, did you mention the father becomes a raging alcoholic? Like he, yeah. He, in in the in one of the flashback things, the moms is like, well, he kind of, I kind of saw this as a possibility when we were young, you know, and we had no, we were carefree, and he would drink too much with these people in the slummy area at the, it was like the Wolf's Head Lodge or something like that, Wolf's Head Inn or something like that, where he would go, and he'd hang out with those people, but then he built up his business and he became a man about town, and he wanted to join the country club and country club wouldn't have him at first and like he he had aspirations to you know being a big be an important dude and there's like all more of like the father's backstory how his father disowned him and like he's all proof it's it's very rich like the detail of the book and again like for this kind of a book these like multi-generational family epics you you know the way it's 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 so well written that you don't mind these weird discursive you know chapters but, he, you know, he then is shunned by all the rich guys, as Nate said, and he then has to go back because he's lonely and he goes back to hang out with the, the slummy dudes till there's a time he, like, starts getting into fights with people there and, like, can't drive home anymore and he's just a fucking hot mess and he's full-fledged alcoholic. And when that happens... Oh, God. You know, he... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus what? Christ. What? I just feel like a fear is about to... <laughs> yeah, it is. So when that happens, you know, things really start falling apart for them. Like, the roofing business goes to shit. And, like, the farm, all the maintenance work they do every day, the kids and the dad, 
it just all kind of falls by the wayside. And, you know, one of the first things they mention, like w- one of the things they mention, like the first thing that you see that goes wrong on a farm if it's not being well maintained is the fences start to fall apart. Uh, because that's just something like easy to fix, but they can't do it. And sometimes when you fix a fence, all you really have to do is nail it down. <laughs> this is nail it down from fifth frame. And coincidentally, I didn't really know they this. They could use a fifth hammer for yeah. that fifth frame of that fence. Yeah, yeah, to nail it in. So nail it down, whatever it's called. I, I didn't realize this until I looked it up uh, when I got home, is from... The locally known, the Ra-Cha-Cha, but to us, Rochester in upstate. Oh, the crotch? I've heard it called that, the too. The crotch. Ooh, good lord. That's weirdly fruity. What is this? Double IP, New England IPA, and it is 8.5%. And it is, uh, yeah, it's weirdly fruity. Cantaloupe flavor? Melon flavor? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It's almost like a, oh, I see, it's a double... Oat cream IPA. So maybe that's what it is. Like that weird feeling. The, all that oat cream. That's like those fucking, uh, what is it? Uh, other, other half, half ones? Other half. Yeah. Well, Joyce Carol Oats. It's a good connection. Yeah. <laughs> it's like three connections in one. I made a great choice. I knew it sounded stupid to begin with, but I knew I was right. It's quite good. But it is, uh, I'm going to say it's like a guava or papaya, because I don't know what those taste like. But if I had to guess it got like that, you know, tropical kind of like fleshy fruit flavor. And it's got the same feel too. I guess that's the oat cream. But it's, it's, it's good. It's interesting. Well, other half does have a brewery in Rochester. So maybe they're spreading their oat cream. That's like been their signature thing. Maybe they've been. I don't want you to ever say the phrase spreading their oat cream again. Well, I'm, I'm not doing it myself. <laughs> I'm just saying they did it. All right. Props to you, Fifth Frame. And like Fifth Frames, this family gets bowled over by tragedy. Fifth frame? Is that a, bo- a bowling thing? Is that what you're reading? I assumed it was a bowling thing, not picture frames. I don't know. How many ordinated frame references could there be? So when Marianne, like, calls home, so she's, like, enrolled, and so she, like, finishes senior year at a different high school, and then at her senior year at a different high school, and then um, ends up starting do- doing some college, like, sort of college classes at a more local community college, but anyway, she would, every time she would call home or someone would call, she would ask, oh, is daddy there? Can I speak to him? And they just say, no, no, he's not, he's not home right now. Oh, no, he's just not here. And then she's always asking, you know, well, how, how are the animals? How's my, how's my favorite horse, Molly O? And it's so fucking heartbreaking. She does bring one cat with her named Muffin, which is really like her only friend, is yeah. literally like her only friend for the next decade. Her only long-term friend. Yeah. So, I mean, so the story jumps back and forth. You, the story about, so Patrick, also known as Pinch, the sort of middle child, the, the sort of the... The second boy, the second born, who's super smart. Super smart, very into science, but he also has a very sour prickly personality yeah i mean you could see like the older brother was a was a popular jock guy and so he you know typical sibling rivalry he goes the as opposite that as he can he also says he has like an iq of like 150 they say that at one point i I don't know he's like an actual fucking genius but he has absolutely no social skills and he just likes to be contrarian though 
like in all their conversations at dinner ta- the dinner table. He's always just ar- choosing the opposite side because he wants to argue against everyone. And he's really good. At, he's really good at science, especially biology and chemistry. And then he's the school. He so this is sort of like the following year. Or it's actually really like the spring of that year. He uh, he's valedictorian, but instead of actually giving a valedictorian speech, he goes there early and sets sets up a complicated device to basically basically put a stink bomb to go off right at the time when his speech is supposed to start so that he doesn't have to give it. And that's the real genius move. And they couldn't figure and, out who could have forever, done this. you know, and for, for years, <laughs> who could you know, be smart enough? <laughs> for years, like, oh, it must be that rival, rival town after that basketball championship. But no, it was, yeah, it this, was this really escalated up from their last prank of pooping in the urinals. And the youngest kid, Judd, <laughs> he figures it out right away. But, you know, he still, he was like eight or nine at this time because he's much younger than the others. Uh, it, like, within only a year, of of Marianne's rape, really, like the, the the Judd, the youngest child, is the only one still living at the house. They like the whole family is just gone. And the father is largely absent too. And they just start selling off everything because the roofing company is losing all of its money because he's not really paying attention. He's like blowing all their money on hiring lawyers to try and sue the ones, but they keep telling him like you. That's not you're never going to win. I mean, it was 1977. Well, they yeah. also say, you know, if she if she's not going to testify, like there and there's no. I mean, this is long before forensic evidence, but there's not even like a police report. What do you have? There's no evidence for a court of law. They're not gonna. And he's a, like, a jury will just not. Convict. Do you hear? The, and when he tells these stories, to the was like, "Can you believe this fucking asshole said this?" And as you read it, you're like, "Yeah, that's that's how it works, dude." But he's so blind with rage. And he uh, throws a beer in the face of the one judge in town. So he's really fucked at that point. He doesn't go to jail for that, but he does get probation. He does. And uh, yeah, so his business is falling apart. They have to like start selling off the horses. So they do mention that, you know, the family was really good at just blowing money on bullshit. But he was the best one. Everybody. But he was a guy who always worried about money. And even though he was the one that spent the most of all, because he'd spent money on his like you know country club dues and shit like that, he had a very strong need to be like one of the cool, important people in town. You know, based on his growing up life, it makes sense. And then when he lost all that, he started to lose his fucking mind, and he started just being an alcoholic and destroying everything. And the mother is a well-meaning, but uh, kind of enabling or like just ignoring any problems, you know. Well, part of her whole thing of being a parent, like her goals were like, I don't ever want to, I don't want to ever be the nosy person. I don't want to ever tell people what to do. Like she's like from, you know, farm stock people who are, you know, capable, you know, just be quiet and do your job and don't worry about other things. And her parents were shitty too. So a comment, I wanted to make it a different episode I think it was, I forget what it was recently, but I forgot to say it. But it applies here too. There's this like theme in modern, the mod, modern America. And we probably talked about this outside of the podcast or maybe on it at some point actually. That you see like, man, this person's parent sucks. And then you realize, well, their parent, that person, that parent's parent was even worse. 
you know? <laughs> and yeah. I had this conversation with a friend of ours, uh, Jimmy, or a friend, person we went to high school with, and we were both talking one day, we were drinking at a bar, complaining about how our dads were terrible, and we both realized, but actually his dad was even more of a monster. And then sitting there quietly thinking about that pretty buzzed, my friend said, man, what was the first dad like? <laughs> uh, he got us kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Yeah, he's, he pissed off God uh, directly. <laughs> it wasn't him. Oh, see? Like, Shaggy? <laughs> Those bitches just ruining everything. Uh, we should talk, though, at the end about men in this book. Uh, but we'll come back to that. Definitely. That's a, that's a theme. Patrick goes away to college and he's in this like really intense like science program and doing really well. I mean, he hates, he has no friends and he hates, he hates everyone, but he like gets really good grades. Marianne is going to come visit. Uh, and he goes to the bus terminal in, cause he goes, he's at Cornell at the bus terminal in Ithaca. And he like literally can't find her. Because he's looking for this young, pretty girl, and there's it there you, it's mentioned. Oh, there's just this like skinny kid in the corner. It was actually her because she had shaved all her hair, or not shaved, but just cut really, really short. She's wearing like kind of really old, ratty clothes, and clearly does not care what she looks like, or definitely avoids, or what he thinks is she just avoids mirrors entirely, and they. They fight about stuff, but they're still, they don't like, you know, give up on each other. Exactly. Uh, and it goes back and forth. And after, after a while, after, uh, you could say a couple years, a couple years go by and Patrick, he's still in college. He gets into his head that he, because justice hasn't been done, that he's going to do it. And so he has this plan where he is going to kill Zachary, kill the Zachary kid. And he has to involve the youngest child, the youngest brother, I mean, who's still the only one at home. It's like, oh, there's, you know, dad has a gun cabinet and there's one gun that I actually shot once before. I need you to bring that to me. Uh, And very, very early in the book on like the first or second or third page, the main, you know, Judd is narrating and he says, oh, and I almost participated in a felony or I did participate in a felony. Sort of. But it was in, we weren't caught or something like that, he says. Yeah. So Patrick, he gets the gun. And it's, and it's switching back and forth between characters. So it is actually a long time in the book till like sort of the resolution of this actually happens. But Patrick gets the gun. He calls up Zachary's mother to say, oh, hey, I'm... He uses a fake name or the name of a different kid that the mom might have known. He said, oh, when's Zachary going to be home? Like, you know... Maybe around Thanksgiving sometime. I just wanted to, you know, say hi and what's his phone number? And uh kind of taunts the mom a little bit, but she but she doesn't realize who Patrick really is. So tells him Patrick finds him and like stalks him outside of like a pizza joint and while Zachary is leaving, literally walks up to him with the gun and says, like, get get in the car. And he drives him off the road with his car. Yes. Drives him off the road, he says, get in. And then they like, I'm going to fucking kill you and stuff like that. You raped my sister and all this stuff. And they drives him out to a bog. Patrick is entirely intense to just shoot him and kill him, but then doesn't 
because Zachary, instead of being like a tough guy, instead of being like what he's just a sniveling coward, he just, you know, pisses cries, himself. Yeah, pisses himself almost immediately. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know. And when he said you raped my sister, he wasn't like, oh, you're the, that one. He's like, he's like, who? Like, which yeah. one? He's like, oh, there's so many you don't fucking know because he's, he's done this a bunch of times. He's part of the, uh, Local elite families, and like he drives a Corvette. Oh yeah, which I think is a very expensive car. I don't know how many a, fucking like small town, car, yeah. you know, upstate families are just running around these dirt roads and fucking Corvettes. No, that's yep. a high end vehicle for that, especially for that part of the country. So Patrick like leaves him, says to him, "I could have killed you, but I let you live," and then like kind of like leaves them out there in the bog. <laughs> see you later and then leave so patrick doesn't actually kill him but he feels that justice has at least partially been done well he's demonstrated to the guy who that he has power and over him you know like you're fucking garbage and you know this is a guy whose whole thing was about power over young girls right like there's all these horrible little snippets of the flashback from marianne throughout the book of Especially the first half of the book, of you know her remembering the night, but it's all hazy, and you just hear lines, and he's like, "Shut up! You wanted this, right?" Like that's how he's asserting himself. And Patrick is a rich frat boy power. Yeah. So you know he's like, "I I didn't have to actually kill you to kind of break you." I guess it's Patrick's mentality. So you get more chapters from about Marianne, about she's working at this sort of, she's not really doing her classes very well, and she's working at this food co-op thing. She's basically a baker, but, and she's like crying, she's crying all the time. There's a whole scene about how much she cries, and she did cry a lot in, in, the, mo- in the book. Did you watch, there but is a movie, still, did you watch it? Is there a movie? There is a movie that was apparently not very well received. It's a lifetime uh, movie. <laughs> Oh, oh God, Jesus! It's only an hour and a half long for a, a, a book that's vast, so it can't be good. No, I uh, definitely did not see that movie. I didn't know it was one. So anyway, she crying a lot. She, but she's she. Everyone likes her because she's a super everyone nice person. Loves her. Yes, definitely. Her when her grandmother dies and she goes away with a boy. A boy offers to drive her to the funeral, but she has to hide because she can't even let her family see her. And she's acting like a complete crazy person by literally just like hiding behind a, a wall and crying. And she and but when she comes back, the co-op food co-op pantry thing director guy is like slash cult leader. Yeah, kind of. Uh, it's, it says, "Oh, but Marianne, you know this whole thing. I we could, I could, I was, I wanted to give you even more." responsibility because because i love you and then she immediately has to run away immediately the next day she quietly packs her few possessions and puts muffin in a box how old is the cat muffin being the cat the cat is uh it's probably like in it's probably like 12 or 13 how long do cats live cats can Cats live on average, you know, like the mid-teens, but they can live for, like, the oldest cat was like 30, but that was an extreme. I think old cats are like 20. Just ask Buster for Jones, you know, or... Yeah. Okay, so she she flees. 
she flees and she goes to work for, she ends up, she like calls her family like once every few months just to, just to check in where she is. Uh, she ends up working for a woman with MS who is like a locally renowned poet in the thriving Pittsburgh poetry scene. Oh, you know that one. Yeah. The Berg. They call it the Berg <laughs> in the circles when they do the snapping. <laughs> so someone playing like bongos in a corner and they're all in black, black turtlenecks. Them's the pits, baby. They're in, they're in black turtlenecks because it's just steel soot. Um, everything's black. Yeah. Uh, so she works in, she works for this, uh, woman and of course she does like a crazy good job because she's you know smart she's just uh has an enormous amount of unprocessed trauma and it has stunted her from doing what we would consider regular everyday human activities like you know not fleeing every few months or weeks or years to a new city when not telling anyone and she makes her read her poetry and she's like ah oh, you know you time could, to flee uh, Time to flee. I'm going to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> oh, no. I dropped out of school for this. <laughs> so Marianne flees that too when she's offered a more substantial position. And it's like, she's like, ah, oh, too much responsibility. And just absolutely leaves again with the cat. Um, and ends up at a animal. So, so she was at a plate. Oh, fucking, I don't know. She was working it's as a dishwasher somewhere. Yeah, she was in Pennsylvania. She's working at a dishwasher and then her cat gets sick because it's old as fuck. And she has to take it to a vet. Takes it to a vet, which is, she brings it to this animal hospital in the area and then ends up staying. It did sound like a sweet place. It did. Where it also, I mean, it's very symbolic that all the animals are injured and they're being taken care of, and they're being rehabilitated, and you know, or given you know what love and care that they can they can get and stuff like that at this place. Anyway, the 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 head the veterinarian guy is kind of an asshole, but you know she likes him. At first, she literally is like, "My cat, it, you know, he's very very sick." And the and the veterinarian is like, "Well, you know, he's kind of old." we can, there's this thing we can do that can extend his life. And she's like, yes, do it. Then she like literally doesn't go home. She literally just like sleeps there. Not, not on a bench. She sleeps on like the In roof, a tree. Like in a tree <laughs> by one of the enclosures. And she ends up staying there. So she's staying to like, first she like works there and helps out. But, and at the very end, she marries the guy. But that's not, that's not to the very end. But meanwhile, there's a lot of other brother's stuff like patrick after almost killing zachary disappears from the book and they just hear from him occasionally he drops out of cornell even though he was like one semester from graduating and from like doing something crazy and like getting his uh you know getting accepted into a phd program somewhere and like all the head nerds at cornell are like this kid's going places he's good at, at science and he's like yeah i know science real good bitch and then he just he keeps changing his PhD, his uh, master's or senior thesis, I guess, at this point, because he's still an undergrad. And eventually he just skips town and starts wandering the country doing weird stuff all over. And we don't see him again until the very end because he's on his own vision quest. And also, uh, the dad's story is violently depressing. He uh, ends up basically abandoning his family what remains after beating the shit out of judd and then judd moves out even though he's 
not even 18 yet, but eventually will turn 18. And then the dad ends up roaming around upstate New York, getting odd jobs and drinking himself to death. The family has to sell the farm. And uh, so for, after they sold off everything at the farm, they end up selling the farm itself to pay out, largely to pay off debts. And then they, they have very little money. And he and his, you know, he and the mom, he and the wife, they don't get along very well. He leaves and he's just a total alcoholic. There's one, his sort of kind of final scene is when it's years later. It's like 1986 at this point, 19, yeah, 1986, 1987. And he's got nothing. He's, uh, his, the Mike Jr., the oldest son, he's on leave from the Marines and he's out getting, uh, Chinese food in Rochester, New York. That's where you go to get the good stuff. Yep. <laughs> Famously known for its Chinese food. <laughs> in 1987. <laughs> yeah. The, the father literally has to bring a cheap bottle of wine with him and eating one bite of food, one drink of wine. Paper bagging it in the restaurant. It's a bold yeah. move. <laughs> mm-hmm. Putting it in the, the tea cups. They, you know, when they, I don't know if they, when they bring you, you know, Chinese tea and it's, I actually have one more beer, so I'm going to open oh, it right it now, which this General applies Sal's to this scene. Beer? But also, no, uh, but also <laughs> to the whole book. This is this beer is called Memory Lane, and it is by Interboro. This is a, it says, it's Memory Lane. It's called West Coast Style IPA, because, you know, that's like a memory now, and people oh, don't yeah. make those anymore around here. Old school. And it is 6% alcohol. And, uh, yeah, it's fine. It's actually not nearly as bitter as I was thinking it was going to be when it's when it bills itself as a West Coast IPA. Unlike the memories in this book, bit. which are very bitter, extremely bitter. And the father in yeah. the scene, very very bitter. <laughs> and he is thinking of like, oh, I used to. He is kind of like I used to be somebody. I used to be important. And now look at me. I'm so. He can't even. You know, he can't even stand basically to get out out of the restaurant and then his son gives him a little bit of money which he wanted to refuse but he couldn't because he had no money of his own and then leaves and he's like, oh, and that's the last time he saw his son and then like the end of the book or, or close to the end, second to last scene of the book is marianne finally gets a phone call that says your father wants to see you and she's like oh my god okay i'll be i'm leaving right now and she's like oh we're not at home or at the hospital in Rochester, it's your father, and he's there, and he had a lung, he, he, he's basically homeless at this point, but he was found, and he had a lung removed because he had lung cancer, but it was already too late, that it was, he was going to die. It already spread to his brain, so he was definitely going to die. Can you live with one lung? Totally. You can live with one lung, yeah. I mean, you can't. Your swimming days are over. Probably not running a marathon, marathon is yeah. going to be a lot harder. But you can do it. Yeah. I um, have someone who has one lung. Yeah. One of my mom's friends. Better than Smoking zero used lungs. to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he got lung cancer because he smoked so much. Anyway, the father basically said, like, see, Marianne comes in, and, and the father, all he can do is say the word Marianne, except not even quite say it correctly. And he can't, you know, he can't, like, speak or really have a conversation or anything like that. He kind of says Marianne. And then... Right afterwards, when they're sort of sort of out in the waiting room or something like that, that Judd is there, and Marianne's like, "Did he, did he say Marianne? Maybe he said like May Ann or 
Mary, he, did, he, did he say, did he even recognize me? And everyone is trying to say, oh, yes, definitely. But I actually thought it, it was at least ambiguous that perhaps he didn't even recognize his own child because he had, you know, rejected her and, you know, couldn't, couldn't even look at her. That and he was, like, freshly out of surgery and had cancer riddled all over his body. He was probably yeah. fucked up. Some tripping, like... Morphine balls, just yeah. They said it's, it's the cancer spread to his brain too. So, so and then he dies, and that's mostly the end. Except there's a really long epilogue, which is five years later. Um, the mom basically manages to organize a family reunion for Fourth of July in upstate New York, where she's now living with her good friend Sable. Yes, we really love antiques <laughs> and her flat top haircut. And they drive a Subaru. They <laughs> just love this Ellen DeGeneres. You <laughs> Junior, Mike Junior, the oldest son, he's there. He brings his wife, who, who you know, who, and they have a they have a couple of kids. Marianne is now married to the veterinarian. Even Patrick has a lady friend that he brings with her with, with him. This is the first time they've seen Patrick in like in years. ten years. Yeah, and then Judd Judd is there though. He oh, runs the, the newspaper. The, yeah, he runs the local newspaper. Oh, we knew that from the beginning of the book too, though. They've successful. Seen. It's not really an important point, though. Not so much. In any way, and so they have everyone kind of feels a lot better, and then it's yeah, the end. Doesn't that ending feel a little weird? The book had less of a dramatic ending than I was anticipating. I was expecting way more of a downer ending. I mean, it's the happy, happy endings are nice and all, but doesn't it feel kind of like out of nowhere? This, this comes into uh, the interview with Charlie Rose uh, that I, I saw. Um, what, the interview where he like, came out in a towel and said, Yeah. Hey, speak into this microphone. <laughs> He says, okay, they're talking about a bunch of other stuff about, you know, he's actually like, why do you write so much, like, over and over again? He's yeah, like, yeah, oh, he's just like writing, dude. He's, he, was, he was just a little bit better, le- not better, less bad than Larry King. Because <laughs> Larry King, like, so uh, this book, does it also have pages like your other ones? Like, his questions <laughs> were always fucking ridiculously stupid. What is your favorite font? And why is it Helvetica bold? I feel like it's not even New Roman at this point. It's been around for a while. I had it on my word processor. <laughs> so Charlie Rose uh, says to her, like this book, let's talk about this book. And he says, this is the story of a father who out of love goes nuts and destroys everything around him. She's like, no, no, that's, that's a part of it. But it's about a lot more than that. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it really, it says a little bit something about Charlie that he says, like, this is about the dad. It's like, he's like the second least involved character. He but kind when of like, the dad dies, like the they could be happy again. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was, yeah. she's like, the, the idea behind this book is that, he's like, he, sa- he says, this book is about a family being destroyed. And she's like, well, they get back together. Because it's about how in families, some small little thing can happen, like a misunderstanding or some small event, and everything just gets thrown off by that, and it just escalates and it just goes fucking crazy at that point. And people don't talk for years, and crazy shit happens. And then one person is removed by one method or another, 
death or they get, you know, just exiled. And then everybody kind of works out their shit and everything goes back together. And like, it happens. These things happen. There are people that ruin entire situations for groups of people. And without that person, it does get fixed. And she just wanted to write a story about that. Well, I mean... I'm sure Charlie Rose didn't, not to defend Charlie Rose, but I'm sure he didn't actually fucking read the book. No, and, definitely not. And he, someone was like, here's what happens. She did say uh, she wanted to write a story about a girl who was abused and banished her with, from, by her dad. Like, kind of like a modern fairy tale. Because in fairy tales, like, the king, for some weird reason, sends the daughter away. And someone's got to rescue her. In this case, she kind of rescues herself. But also, the fact that she has all these animal friends is kind of like a fairy princess. A little, yeah, a little uh, yeah. Cinderella-ish. Disney. Yeah. We, we just didn't mention her obese mouse friend who always <laughs> was making bumbling mistakes. Tumble Blumpkins. <laughs> <laughs> it meant something different back in the 30s, Michael. <laughs> Your pants fell off again, Tumble Blumpkins. Oh, and always when I'm on the to- always when I'm in the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> Gosh. Oh boy. Yeah, my question reading is who who you know, maybe it's a dumb question. Who's the book about? Because like there's the incident that is like the f- focal point of the book really is the abu- the assault of the sexual assault of Marianne. I don't know if it's the focal point. It's kind of the Impetus. It's the inciting incident. Yes, that's the word. Well, the entire first half of the book, it's just that. And then the other half, second half of the book is, and how do people deal with that? So I guess, yeah, Yeah. I mean, it is is the thing that starts the whole plot, but it leads to the complete unraveling of their family. And then just like neatly, they wrapped up at the end. So the comment that, you know, it's about how families can drift and get fucked up and then find themselves together. I get that. I've experienced things similar to that in my family, and maybe you have too, where, you know, like, weird shit, like, why doesn't this uncle come around anymore? We don't talk about <laughs> him anymore. Okay. And then someone dies, and they're like, that guy's back in the fold. All right. We're just going to live. We're going to roll with that. It, I mean, it, 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 it seems convenient for us because it skips ahead so far, but it was, you know, overall, like, 15 years? It was a long time. Almost a as long, long as it takes time. to read this book. Yeah, that's true, too. But there's a there's a lot of little weird things about it. Like when Patrick is doing his thesis, what he wants to study is something he calls forced evolution. I don't know if it's a real thing or not, but for the purpose of this book, it's something in the, out of X Men. <laughs> yeah. Oh, then he gets claws, and he can teleport his butthole somewhere else to poop cleanly. <laughs> Be a really weird X Man. But uh, he is basically like some, some kind of. <laughs> <laughs> he moves into another dimension, so he never has to wipe. The juggernaut. <laughs> the night sprawler. <laughs> spreads everywhere. Oh. No? It, he didn't say he was neat about it outside of his body. <laughs> I mean, it's in another dimension. doesn't care. Cyclops. <laughs> I don't know enough X-Men. I'm trying to think. My brain is working 100% on this right now. Gam shit. Uh, oh, oh, God. I'm, uh, I mean, the beast is just too good to not. Gene Brown. <laughs> Nate, Nate, what do you think? Do you have any X- X-Men shit puns you want to join? <laughs> well, I, I've got a list. Let me look them up. 
So uh-huh. forced evolution is when uh, a species has is put in a situation where it has to make a radical adaptation or it's wiped out. And he wants to study like that, like what happens to it. And he is like this uber nerd, you know, doesn't care about anyone or anything except science. And then he basically almost murders a guy and ends up roaming around the country doing odd jobs, random weird shit, like working as a therapist maybe, or, you know, just working at a fucking circus. I don't remember. He did a bunch of weird stuff all over and he's like trying to find something completely different just to survive because he fucking hated what he was doing. He realized, I guess, I don't know. I'm sure there's something in there. I have to imagine everything they did was carefully planned because Joyce Carlos is such a fucking like literary writer that everything must have meant something. Oh yeah. That's another one reason why this made me think of Middlesex and uh, yeah, Brief Wonder of Slice of Oscar Wow. It's another book that had this similar kind of vibe. Like there's a lot of stuff happening and it's going back and forth. And, and you know that there's no, it's not like when, if, if something gets mentioned, it's important. And I noticed that with the class, there's like random stuff when the kids are in the, in school before everyone gets dispersed and they are in school and like they mention evolution a couple of times. It comes up earlier in the book too. Like, so-and-so is in, you know, in class and she's not really paying attention, but the teacher is talking about evolution or something. But the thing is like, there are other classroom scenes where like there's this, like the French class, they don't start talking about like fucking subjunctive case French verbs or whatever. What the fuck? I don't know. They just like, oh, it's in French class and that's all you, it doesn't matter. Like the French should, but then, oh, why are we getting all this information about the science homework that they have that's about evolution? Like I, I don't I don't have an answer why, but I was like, this can't be here by accident. This wasn't like Joyce Carol. Yeah. I need to pad this book with an extra paragraph about fucking Darwin. <laughs> God damn it, Saberpooth. Ah oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Load. Toad? Oh I I got it. Oh yeah. He's one of the lesser hits, but you know. <laughs> but the, I, like so the evolution thing, I don't really know I I'm not sure what that meant. I'm not sure what it was I mean, about. I'm, I'm sure that that is kind of, like, I think, I think we're probably, if we really develop, you know, spend a lot of time talking it out and figuring it out ahead of time and blah, 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 you, you would come up with a passable, like, English paper level understanding. And, you know, maybe it's one of those things that has multiple interpretations because that's what all books are nowadays. Well, all of the characters do change dramatically. They all have, like, a trajectory that they're on in the beginning of the book. And then it is wildly diffracted, you know, like, to another distracted they're all forced to uh, evolve yeah exactly like this event changes them all everyone was on a different like the dad was on this path of i'm coming up in the town and i'm uh i'm on the i'm on like the the board of commerce in fucking bumfuck new york and then he this is called punctuated equilibrium theory what is that Two different ways to conceptualize evolution. One is that it's a steady change over time, and one is that things stay mostly the change until an event totally like fucks everything, and then everything changes all at once really quickly. So, like That's the, the X-Men. punctuated equilibrium. It, it's like uh, the the asteroid kills all the dinosaurs, and then things change. And like really every uh, ecologi- every like ecological niche is now up for grabs. You know, like the entire food pyramid not pyramid food chain is fucked up and then 
what happens is like there is now opportunity for things to evolve in radically different ways because there's so much opportunity to fill a different niche or because you know the pred- you know there there's so many different ways things can go it's like this uh you know chaotic moment what's the word it's like a royal rumble <laughs> which is what you feel right before you transport your asshole to another <laughs> dimension to shit uh you know, like if you know the case of like the dinosaurs, right? The the is that the K two extinction event? Is that what that's called or something like that? KT something like that. KT K two no. is the mountain. KT right? That sounds right. Yeah. No one's gonna question us. Call us out on it. <laughs> Prove you listened. But it's uh, it's it's when the asteroid. I think it's the KT thing. It's when the asteroid hits, kills the dinosaurs. But the dinosaurs are like the dominant both carnivores and herbivores on the planet. And it, it went by eliminating them. It allowed for this tremendous change in that mammals, which at that point were like little ferret things all of a sudden have an opportunity. Little nocturnal mousy ferret things. Yeah, that was it. They are all of a sudden able to fill these other you know, niches that are available to become different types of predators and, you know, predators that are going to live with the other ones, different types of herbivores, et cetera. And it happens really dramatically fast. In, 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 uh, in uh, evolutionary terms, very fast. <laughs> Still talking about millions of years. The last 6,000 years. Oh, millions. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then God puts fi- fossils there to test our faith. <laughs> Speaking of faith, though, this book, like, religion is a huge theme in this. Like, all the characters are... Or many of the it's characters. really just the, the, mom. the mother and the daughter. And the dad. The mother and the daughter are very religious. And then the Patrick is very much anti-religious. Well, he's supposed to be the science guy, you know. But he's also the contrarian of the family, and he goes against whatever everyone else does. But the dad also says, like... He's a permanently lapsed Catholic. As opposed to most Catholic altar boys who are prolapsed Catholics. <laughs> 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 no, but the dad, even the dad says that when the scene, when, when he finally tells the mother, I can't look at her anymore. He says, he basically starts and ends the sentence with God. I, I, I could pull out, he basically says, he says something like, God help me. I can't stand to look at the girl anymore. Oh God, please forgive me. Like, re- like religion's an important part of their life for some reason. Like that also is not a thing that can be an accident. And I know Joyce Carol Oates is a lapsed Catholic. I mean, she's probably an atheist at this point, but she was raised Catholic and then yeah. has no faith at, at this point. Uh, this book was written in the 90s. I, I don't know what her, where she was in her evolution at that point. The religious thing can't be an accident. And then if you want to get super nerdy, there's the religion and then the evolution themes in the book, and I'm not really sure what to make of that connection, if there is one to be made at all. If we had a month, we could figure it out. But we don't. This is the perfect book for a English class, like to sit and, you know, sit in your seminar and talk to each other about your different ideas and have somebody who's read the book like nine times give you guiding clues and shit. So it is, it's a great book for that kind of setting. It's like, uh, what, um, Invisible Man, Ralph Ellison was a professor and he only wrote the one book and she writes one book every six minutes, but <laughs> it's, you know, she, she's very from what I've read, you know, in several minutes of research, she's very much about like planning these things out and like 
the form and structure, like the length of chapters or something that matters to her, like before she even writes. It's a very, she's very focused on form and structure. Apparently, she actually even writes mystery novels. Oh, yeah. As uh, under a a nom de plume. She didn't have enough like other books. She's got to take them all. I think those might not be quite as... Maybe all books are just George Carroll Oates. The the mystery things might be that, you know, her her slumming it, those aren't her, you know, highest brow things. Well, so in the book, there's a lot of, like, so the the father loses his mind because his daughter's been raped, right? He, like, basically destroys him. And then he can't do anything about it. And he's, but in the flashback scenes of the father, when he met the mother, or when she met him, whatever, all he cares about is, is she a virgin? And even though he's been banging other girls, like, does not matter. Like, just wants to make sure that she's a virgin. And he has been, and it says at one point he has been, quote, sexually aggressive. Yeah. I don't want to say it is a feminist book, but there is certainly a theme of questioning or highlighting the way men have treated women in the past, you know, couple of generations in America and definitely in like small towns. Yeah. Kind of thing too. Well, like the doctor, right? The doctor is supposed to be this smart person to help you. And they, they use the euphemism a lot that Marianne has been hurt and, the doctor's supposed to help her, and he's just kind of like, mm, yeah, I don't know what you're going to, you know, she's, take these pills that will restore her appetite, and take these other pills that will make her sleep, and there's not really much else we can do. He's, he said, like, let's try not to make a really big deal out about it. I was like, oh, God well, Also, look, when the daughter, uh, think about this, how, how much this is different, and I don't think it's un- inaccurate, I'm sure it's very, it's her, it's, uh, depressingly accurate. The girl doesn't go to school for two weeks. This is a girl who never misses school and is involved in, like, she's a cheerleader and is involved in all these different things. And she doesn't show up for two weeks and nobody cares. And then when she shows back up, she has to have a meeting with the principal and like the guidance counselor and her parents. Yeah. And it was never about like supporting her. It was more just like, you know, don't make a scene. Tell us, yeah, keep it under wraps, kid. And no, and everybody instantly knows the story. It spreads like you know, COVID, and everybody knows what's happening, and nobody does anything about it. They do vandalize so, stalls about her being a slut. They also write lecoq on her desk in French class. Yeah, that is French. Which I didn't take French. Is is that how it is? Yes, it is. Yeah, is that rooster or is that actually? <laughs> C-O-Q is rooster or chicken. and oh, like cock of yeah. yeah, that's the only context I've seen it called that. So there is like a, also a commentary or, you know, message or whatever about the way victims of sexual assault have been treated and are treated. Yeah, until recently, no one gave a shit. Almost every time. Well, part of it is the way that the law is written, I suppose. I don't know, I'm a legal expert, but... You have to accuse, you know, uh, how is it phrased? Like you have the right to face your accuser. Yeah. 
So she doesn't want to face him. Like, that's just like, all right, well, I guess she doesn't really mean these charges. Yeah, I mean, that's still an issue. I think also back then it was just, you know, they're women. It was just more shame than, there's there's enough shame in the... Yeah, I mean, the whole time she just feels guilty like it's her fault. She keeps saying, like, it was partly my fault because I drank. She said, it's just as much my fault. Yeah, so. So she said, it's equally my fault. Because I had a few drinks, and this guy was two—it says he's two years older than her. He, he takes advantage of her. So there's something there, too. I mean, there's a lot—I mean, it's like, this, you know, if we've not made it clear already, Joyce Carol Oates is going to write a book that's like, uh, you know, an onion. And I necessarily mean it's going to make you cry, but it's just got layers and layers of stuff. Did you see the book she wrote before this one? I've never read anything else. Let me just so see I what it know. was. Uh, zombie? We are the Mulvanes. <laughs> <laughs> and the other, the prequel to that is We Are Going to Be the Mulvanies. But uh, the book before she showed up before this was called Zombie. Never heard of it. And it is about... Zombie is a 1995 novel by George Carl Oates, which explores the mind of a serial killer. It is based on the life of Jeffrey Dahmer. It's about a guy nice. who wants to find a young man and rewire his brain to turn him into a mindless sex slave by doing surgery on him. So then she wrote this, you know, sad family novel. (laughs) She's like, Jesus. I, I, without having read anything else of hers that I could recall, I don't know if she has a style or a thing that she does. And if you write 4,000 books, you probably don't have, and you're still respected, you probably don't have just a thing. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of things here that, you know, a, you know, to discuss with your your other book club friends here about what are the meaning of these things. But overall, what do you think of the book? I really liked it. It's a really good book. Yeah, I thought that was one of the yeah. best I'd read in a long time. Yeah, I, I could tell this was a, I agree with you guys, it's a super literary book. You know, there again, as we said, there's like nothing accidental. It's all carefully crafted, but it didn't feel forced and pretentious as much as we have accused Joyce Carol Oates, the person of being pretentious, the book itself did not come off like that. And it reminded me of uh, Middlesex, even though that came later, and Cavalier and Clay and Oscar Wilde, which will come later, which are some of my favorite books ever. So I was like, this, you know, this book's really amazing. I really, really liked it. And it's the book that I was trying to read through it really quickly because I did not realize it was going to be... The, I didn't realize the density of the 500 pages of this book. It is. It's a lot. To t- it's a lot it's, to take in. It, it's a great reading experience. Even and I say that knowing I did not understand every part of it. I did not get every clue or understand every you know symbol in the book by any stretch. But just just following along with the story was really great. Yeah. So it's a great read. And if you are the type of person who wants to decode a book, there's plenty of that here too. But it's also not hard to read. It's a literary book, but it's not difficult. That's right. It's not confusing. The language isn't too hard. The only thing that might be challenging if you're not an avid reader is the jumping back and forth in perspectives where that might be a little hard to follow at first till you get the feel of it. But other than that, yeah, it's really not difficult at all. It, it, there's only, it's really only from the perspective of like four or five characters at most. So if at first it, I, I was lost a few times, just like, wait, who the fuck is this now? But after like a page or two, you, 
you settle in and realize who it is and it, it helps. And it helps that there's a bunch of little short chapters and then there'd be like one really long chapter from someone's perspective and then a bunch of short ones again and then one long one. So it kind of breaks up the pacing a little. It's not like a war and peace kind of investment in time, but it'll take you some time. I think uh, a week or two is a pretty brisk pace to do this book. I think it would be time well spent. Uh, I agree, 100%. I would like to read more of her books. We picked this one because it was apparently her most well-known or by some metric that I don't really understand. I don't know, but... I forget exactly what it was, but we were probably just looking at like sales or Goodreads ratings, and we did not know at the time that this was her Oprah's Book Club book, which is probably why. But also, it's when you have 50, 60 books... There's going to be a lot of debate as to which is your best or even most well-known one. Yeah, I don't think... I mean, I'm sure she's won plenty of awards, but she writes a lot of different things. She writes a lot of short stories. She writes novels. She writes poems. Writes plays. She's like just, just produces shit. She's, she writes from 8 to 1 every day and then a little few hours in the, in the evening. Like every day. That's what she does. She needs to get on the phone with George R.R. R. Martin. <laughs> tell him to finish that fucking book. It's been 11 years. She could have written the entire series 11 times by now. I would like to read Game of Thrones as written by Joyce Carol Oates. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, a lot, of, a lot of creatives do that kind of thing. They have a very structured day. Because, you know, a lot of people, people who such as me at least, who don't actually do anything artistic for a living, kind of there's like a mystery, like how do you just write a fucking book and have ideas and shit and collect that? It seems almost like it must be inspired. It's like ideas just come from somewhere. But for a lot of people, it's just, that's the job. Like I just sit in front of the typewriter and I just type shit all day. And 80% of it I throw out at the end of the week, but I just keep plugging away. Like Philip Glass, he does the same thing. He's like, I only compose from noon to four during the day. Like that's it. At the rest of the weekday, I do other shit. I don't compose the rest. Of the-. Like that's a pretty modern thing. Like so, I'm, you know, not, I'm not shocked. I know Michael Crichton also used that too, but his is mostly reading Wikipedia from eight to one. <laughs> <laughs> but he was another one that had a, a strict writing schedule. And Stephen King does too. It's just whenever he has he has enough blow, he just starts writing. <laughs> and when he runs out of blow, he gets more, and then he repeats that cycle. So I guess we're saying if you like books, you should read this book. It's a book person's book and a, a regular. I mean, I did read the reviews on Goodreads to see what other like regular people thought of it, and some people were like, "This is amazing," and some people were like, "This is hot trash." Though a lot of them were like these parents are shitty parents and this is unbelievable. It was like, no, it's really not. This is entirely believable. Were they giving the kind of reviews that Joyce Carol Oates criticized the Oprah people? Of- I think it was absolutely like, you know, like, oh, you know, these people are bad and why are they doing this? And this is a disgusting treatment of, of you know, women or some stuff. I was like, yeah, but it's a, That's the it's point a story. of the story. Yeah. What? Just because you thought they were bad people doesn't mean it's a bad book. That's not, that's not how this works. It does on the internet, Jimmy. How everything works on the internet. Oh, it's on the internet. This is on the internet forever now. All of our X Men poop jokes forever. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to last in history just as long as this book. <laughs> Try, I'm, I'm still trying to think of more. Uh, I can't. M- M- Magnet. Oh no, it's all over my hands. <laughs> <laughs> Poopily. Professor Flex. Specs. <laughs> Oh, oh, 
CKS. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, Nate, bring us home. So if if so if you've got any X Men <laughs> jokes, well, why don't you send us an email at drunkguysbookclub at gmail Send us your favorite poop themed X Men. We'll post it on all of our social media things and and whatever. I would absolutely post that. <laughs> Such as. Oh, follow us on Twitter at Drunk Guys BC. Or Facebook and Instagram at Drunk Guys Book Club. And if you listen this long, why not leave us a review wherever you're listening? That really helps us out. Just round up to five stars, one for each poop joke we made. And, uh. <laughs> <laughs> one for each poop themed yeah, X-Men. At least one. Right? <laughs> uh, that'll, that'll be really great. Uh, and if you're into the Patreon thing, go to patreon.com slash Drunk Guys Book Club. You could support the podcast there. And we'd appreciate that too if you're into it. I also thought of another one. Scatman with the power of skibidi bop 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 bop. Did you say skibidi bop bop plop at the end of it? Okay. Yes. It glitched a little. I didn't hear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and also go to Goodreads and follow us. We probably will be doing the same thing there. We and and I'll I'll friend you back. I'll friend you back. Uh, I, I will too. I, yeah. We all do. We're very friendly. Course. And check out the Hop Network, a network of independent beer podcasters. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.